Scientists in the U.S. say they have developed an artificial womb that could dramatically increase the chances of survival for premature babies. Researchers have already successfully tested these liquid-filled sacs on lamb fetuses. They say if the technology can be used on humans, it could offer extremely premature babies a crucial opportunity to develop their lungs and other organs. Welcome to Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson. Ectogenesis is the process of growing an embryo, or a fetus, in an artificial environment. That is, outside the womb. It might sound a bit far-fetched, but just imagine the possibilities. Women could stay in the workforce, it could be an alternative for couples who are unable to conceive, and premature babies could have a higher rate of survival. But it does come with some unsettling imagery. Have you ever had a dream, Neo, that you were so sure was real? What if you were unable to wake from that dream? How would you know the difference between the dream world and the real world? There's that scene in The Matrix which might come to mind, when Neo breaks out of the fluid sac that's keeping him alive and finds himself in the real world. Welcome to the real world. While it's still something of science fiction, growing a human in a bag is much closer than we think. And we'll be exploring this topic right after a word from our sponsors. Researchers say that the bag, which has only been tested on baby lambs, not only mimics the womb, but it also functions as of the placenta as well, giving extremely premature babies an opportunity to develop their lungs and other organs. In April 2017, researchers from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia developed an extremely premature lamb in a transparent fluid-filled bag for four weeks. The picture says it all. The first photos show a thin pink lamb. But the photos four weeks later show a lamb that has grown to double its size, covered with patches of white wool. And the only reason they stopped at four weeks was because animal treatment laws prevented them from growing it any longer. This development was startling. Even the television drama Grey's Anatomy built a similar concept into their storyline. Oh, his pitch was awesome. It's a freaking baby in a bag. A baby in a bag. Yeah, an external womb. He's already made a prototype. He showed us the video of the baby lamb. In a bag? Yep. Ten years in peds and I have never thought of something so cool. Almost sounds too good to be true. But this remarkable development didn't just happen overnight. Futurists have been talking about this for decades. The term ectogenesis, coined by British scientist J.B.S. Haldane in 1924, literally means outer birth in ancient Greek. His essay, Daedalus or Science and the Future, is written in the voice of a fictional undergraduate student in the year 2073, who claims ectogenesis is normal and universal. High-profile futurist, philosopher and journalist Zoltan Ishvan advocates this prediction. He sees ectogenesis as part of a utopia where sci-fi and humanity combine to better the human experience. I think the future is definitely going to be artificial wombs. This idea that we can significantly improve uh, development of 
uh, a child inside an artificial womb where we can kind of like sort of matrix style feed it the kinds of things that it might need, the kinds of uh, uh, vitamins and the and give it the kind of love and comforting and things like that while, you know, avoiding some of the challenges uh, of actually giving birth, especially the blood and the, the dangers to women and stuff like that. But, you know, I have come across ectogenesis, you know, when I first wrote an article for Vice about it, and I really, you know, kind of also talked quite a bit about the, the abortion issue, which it might end up dramatically solving. Obviously, we're several generations away from 1974, but scientists have been working on this idea of an artificial womb since the 50s. Emmanuel M. Greenberg patented the first design of an artificial womb in 1955, and since then researchers have attempted to bring his vision of external pregnancy into reality. Through the 60s, 70s and 80s, there were other groundbreaking developments in reproductive technologies and fetal healthcare. Neonatal incubators were commonplace in hospitals by the 70s. The first IVF and surrogate babies were born in 1978 and 1986, and the first successful operation on a fetus was in 1981. There were no significant breakthroughs in artificial womb technology, though, until 1996, when researchers from Jutendo University in Tokyo invented the extrauterine fetal incubation system and were able to keep 14 gestating goats stable for nearly a week. And that development was nothing quite like the lamb-in-a-bag breakthrough of 2017. Researchers from the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia developed eight lambs by caesarean section when the lambs were developmentally similar to a 23- or 24-week gestating human infant. These extremely preterm lambs were put in a fluid-filled bag called a biobag. Inside the biobag, the animals were able to uh, take in the substitute amniotic fluid um, it would coat their lungs, just like if they were still in mom. And the uh, mechanical placenta was attached to the umbilical cord. That's AP health reporter Lauren Neergaard. This mechanical placenta is called an oxygenator, and it does exactly what the placenta does. It supplies nutrient and oxygen-rich blood to the lamb fetus. And these lambs grow normally. While there's no long-term data on the lambs, the experiment was considered a success. The biobag lambs' organs developed at a normal rate. And while research has so far exclusively been on lambs, because they're considered to be developmentally similar to humans, it won't be for long. The researchers predict that testing on humans could begin within the next three to five years. It might be a bit unsettling, but there's some real incentive to push this technology further. Dr. Alan Flake, one of the researchers on the project, has previously said the rate of prematurity has increased over the past few decades. In the United States, about 1% of all infants are considered uh, significantly premature. If you look at the actual numbers of children that are born and have morbidity related to prematurity, that number has gone up. It hasn't gone down over the past decade. And the reason is, is that we're saving many more extreme premature infants now than used to survive. So the problem isn't going away, and it won't go away um, uh, in the foreseeable future, 
around half of infants born at 24 weeks will die, which makes prematurity the leading cause of infant death. And of the ones that survive, 90% will develop some kind of illness. So there's a very clear need for some kind of solution, and that solution may be found in artificial wombs. But the big question, can we actually grow a human outside of the womb from the very beginning? Well, it turns out we may be able to. Even if I had a very nice bottle of wine beforehand, I would still could have not imagined the kind of things that I saw. That's Dr. Ali Brivenlu, Professor of Developmental Biology, Stem Cell Biology and Molecular Embryology at Rockefeller University in New York City. In 2016, his team, along with their peers from Cambridge University, managed to grow a human embryo from the beginning outside of a womb for two weeks. To understand how it works, we need to go back to high school biology. A male sperm fertilizes a female's egg, and then the egg attaches to the uterus. The attachment happens somewhere between seven, eight days after fertilization. And then when that sphere becomes a disc, it disappears inside of the maternal tissue. In fact, women don't even know that they are pregnant uh, two weeks into a post-fertilization. While researchers knew how an embryo behaved directly after fertilization, Ali says not much was actually known about the human embryo once it was implanted in the lining of the uterus. If you Google, even now, day 14 human embryos, you would land on a handful of pictures that were collected purely by accidents by pathologists who were doing uh, sections in post-mortem samples and they discovered that there are these very interesting structures and they concluded correctly that this must be an attached human embryo. So when his team embarked on this experiment to grow an embryo outside the body, they had no idea what they would actually discover. They expected the embryo would last maybe two days after fertilization at the most, but it kept growing, which suggested something unprecedented. A human embryo didn't actually need to be inside the body to generate tissues and cells. That means that all the information that is necessary and sufficient to move a human embryo from day one to day 14 is already encoded in the embryonic DNA, in the embryonic genome. And so that was really, to me, something that I never imagined. In fact, if I had to bet, I would... I told my students and postdocs I would be happy if we can get one or two days post-attachment. And here, the embryo was moving forward to, to day 14. While the ability to grow a human genome outside the womb could allow researchers to understand the early stages of incurable diseases like Huntington's and increase the success rate of reproductive technologies such as IVF, there is a catch. An international ethical agreement enforced in the late 1970s by the National Academy of Sciences after the first IVF child was born. And that agreement prevents researchers from growing human embryos for longer than 14 days. And one of the toughest decisions I had to make in my life, and I'm not talking only about my scientific life, I'm talking about my entire life, was that decision that very early in the morning where we had to 
we're seeing the clock ticking close to day 14. And now we have to make a decision, are we going to let these structures continue to move forward as beautiful as they are? Or are we going to stop it by respect of the 14 day? And it's important to mention that this 14 day rule in the United States is just a guideline. In other countries like the UK, the 14 day rule is actually a policy. Nevertheless, Ali decided to pull the plug. Being in New York and being in the US and dealing with guidelines, we thought that these experiments are too important to generate a situation where people would be uncomfortable with the way we're moving forward. So I, I called it, but there was a little bit of a few tears were shed, but, but we stopped the experiments uh, just before day 14. Back when that ethical line was drawn, we were nowhere near growing a human outside the body. But the technology is here, and it begs the question, are the ethical guidelines out of date? Ali says they are, because his technology has the potential to save lives. It would benefit the society to reopen this debate. The debate should not be done by scientists, because I think we have a conflict of interest. I think we should be ex-official in this debate, listen carefully and respect everybody's opinion and make sure that we can actually manage to find a way to balance the respect of individual moral and ethical values with the clinical benefits that this kind of technology inevitably brings forward. And if the ethical line is ever extended or removed, Ali says that ectogenesis could actually become a reality. And I used to say that's going to happen in the future, maybe in 100 years. Now I can tell you it will happen within 20, 25 years. The speed at which things are moving forward, very, very soon women will have a choice of carrying their baby inside or outside of their body. And there are consequences to that and and to the choice, as you know. But I, I see it very similarly to the choice between breastfeeding versus bottle feeding. What is really important here is that there is a choice. And the right to choose is one of the big ethical questions that may stop ectogenesis in its tracks. And we'll explore more on this topic right after this quick break. Welcome back to Moonshot, I'm Christopher Lawson. And someone who has pondered all of the concerns around ectogenesis is Helen Sedgwick, a bioengineer, researcher and author. She's explored them in her novel, The Growing Season, which imagines a future where it's absolutely normal to grow a baby in an external womb. I think it could be an amazing thing for women. I think it could be an amazing thing for all sorts of people, for single people, for gay couples, for older women who've never had a child before. You know, it could really be a life-changing and potentially a life-saving technology for so many people. Instead of the dystopian sci-fi imaginings of ectogenesis, Helen envisages an external womb in the form of a pouch that is carried around the neck and rests on the stomach, much like a natural pregnancy. I think actually there could be a wonderful bond between both uh, both parents and child in the baby pouch. And after all, it would give fathers a chance to experience pregnancy in a way that they've never, uh, never really had the chance to experience. Because men can carry the pouch too, of course. Men can feel their, their unborn baby kicking against their stomachs, you know. 
um, it could change, uh, change fatherhood. But Helen does have concerns. One is the question of whether a growing embryo actually needs to be inside the human body to develop into a physically and emotionally sound human. On the very personal level of the fact that we don't understand exactly what happens when a woman is pregnant. We don't know all the ways in which uh, a, a developing embryo and its mother are speaking to one another and affecting one another from the very, very early stages. So there's definitely a, a concern that something would be changed if we moved pregnancy to, to taking place entirely outside the human body. Another is whether the value of women in particular societies will be lessened which may open the door to manipulation and abuse. This is a technology that could potentially be be abused. Um, you know, if men are carrying the baby, is, is there a chance that abusive relationships uh, could, could make use or take advantage of that technology in a way to manipulate women? Is there a danger that if women are no longer childbearing, they'll be seen as, as being redundant in some societies? You know, um, and that's a very scary thought that gets quite sort of handmaid's tale if you go down that line of thinking. And then there's the whole abortion debate. There are already some US states legislating against choice. So could ectogenesis mean women lose their right to choose? Because, of course, all our abortion legislation at the moment is is one way and another rooted in the idea of viability. So at what point does a fetus become viable outside the human body? And a technology like external wounds means that uh, essentially a fetus is viable from the moment of conception outside the human body. And that could have huge uh, knock-on impacts, really, to do with a woman's right to choose and and things like that. And if this technology does become commonplace, who will actually pay for it? Um, One of the big questions in the UK would be, is this going to be something that's developed on the NHS or is this going to be something that's developed privately? Um, And we already have those two things happening hand in hand with uh, with IVF and things like that. that You can go NHS, you can go private, and it's... A difficult choice and it you know it it, it brings an, in, an inequality into the situation that I'm personally very uncomfortable with. But Zoltan reckons there's only one way to avoid a potential class divide where the rich use external wombs and the poor have natural births and that relies on government policy and intervening to make sure that the technology is available for everyone. But you know the idea that only the rich would have would be I think a terrible long-term um it would have terrible long-term consequences to society as a as a whole. I mean, the last thing we need is a Gattaca where, you know, only the super, super smart get to do things and the others don't. And on the topic of Gattaca, this technology could be a gateway to cloning or designer babies, dystopian predictions which have their own legal and ethical labyrinths. Despite all of this, Zoltan says that as a society, we can ethically make this technology possible. We might have the technology in 10 years to do start to finish from a test tube uh, to through the artificial womb and out and happy and, and survivability of this of this infant. But um, it may not be allowed for, let's say, another five or 10 years after. So maybe 15 or 20 years out, just because there's going to have to be global wide debates. The U.N. will probably have to get involved and everybody will have to then say, well, what is the right of something like this? Helen is also quite positive that we will be able to sort through these ethical questions and eventually employ the technology for the benefit of society. I'm an optimist, though, and my book was very optimistic, I think. Um, So I believe that more, basically more people will want to use this technology for good than to misuse it. So I think we will take it and we will... um, 
it will be life-changing and life-saving for some, and the advantages of that will mean that we embrace it as a society. And while the technology will require us to answer questions about ourselves and society in unprecedented ways, there is no doubting that growing a baby outside the human body will save lives and lead to a host of medical breakthroughs. It will allow scientists like Ali to improve the success rate of other reproductive technologies and to be privy to the undiscovered developments that happen inside the womb, which may help cure what was before considered incurable. You do realise that there are fetal diseases in humans that lead to abortion early on or to serious deformities, you know, to a point where sometimes the fetus is unrecognizable. And because it is inside of the womb, it's impossible to have the kind of medical intervention that you can imagine if this was growing outside, where you can actually apply your microscopes, your surgery tools. You can track and follow what goes wrong at any given time. You can trace the origin of it. And I think that's another aspect of it that's tangential to this that's going to emerge very, very soon. That's it for another episode of Moonshot. Thanks for joining us. This episode was hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson, with research and scripting by our intern, Maddie Trasta. Our artwork is by Andrew Millist, and our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. And don't forget, if you want to have the very best experience of listening to Moonshot, then I encourage you to go and sign up for Moonshot Daily. Not only will you get an ad-free feed of this very podcast, but you'll also get a daily email update about the future. We curate the most interesting stories about future technology and bring them to you every single day. So go to moonshotdaily.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.